Welcome back to the Boundary Corner Podcast. My name is Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. How are you doing tonight, buddy? Me and you are co-watching some uh, Big 12 hoops here. Two tournament teams battling down in the state of Texas. We're both very tired. Guys, our, if our energy level isn't normal, <laughs> Brian has had a hell of a week. There, there's going, been doctor's appointments in pretty much every member of my family this week on top of not the greatest sleep due to some of those things. So if if I'm a little low energy or lethargic compared to my normal you know, persona, don't take it out on me. I'm trying to, uh, trying to grind through and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get a nice episode out for you guys. Anyway, getting a good episode out regardless, just the energy levels aren't there. Again, Brian, like you said, everybody in his house has been to the hospital or to the doctors this week. Us over here, we're changing schedules again with one of the kiddos back in school in person. So my routine has completely changed and obviously, you know, pregnant wife, and we're getting close, close to time. Things are happening. The final countdown. <laughs> final countdown where every little thing where it's like, okay, me me texting and telling people, I might not be able to work tomorrow. And then no, I'm working tomorrow. Um, so <laughs> On alert? Nope, not on alert. Not on alert, exactly. But, you know, guys, it's been a couple weeks since we dropped anything, and that was Dwight Vick's interview. We really appreciate all the listens we got to that, we had an unbelievable time with Dwight. You know, if you don't follow him and Victory Life on Twitter, do so. He's a heck of a follow. Um, and we're definitely probably going to have him back soon. But since that point in time, a lot of things going on on Hokie Nation. We're going to hit a variety of topics tonight. Um but what's going to lead off the show is something the guys over at Sunday Saturday, primarily Evan Norris, did. He had an interview with former Hokie quarterback Hendon Hooker. And, you know, overall, the interview, Brian, you know, it seems like, you know, he left on pretty cordial terms. He did not bust anybody. Um, you know, he did raise some things here and there. Um, what was What was some of the things that, kind of caught you Brian yeah it definitely wasn't like a clapback season uh type interview so we we didn't see any of the sparks flying or anything like that whether you were expecting that or not expecting that uh, um you know you'll you'll be disappointed there it's, it's very much a uh straightforward interview um some concerns in there but nothing that you know was you know get your popcorn ready worthy of uh <laughs> <laughs> of checking out there. It was, it was a very good interview. I think Evan did a good job with it. Um, particularly things that st- stood out for me. And, you know, this is one thing that we've talked about before is, you know, some, some of the comments that Hendon made about the offensive scheme. Um, nothing was necessarily blatantly, blatantly negative. Um, but there, there were some concerns about, you know, sometimes, Plays not there. Sometimes, you know, don't have the right call at the right time. You know, things like that where you can kind of read between the lines a little bit and say, yeah, I wasn't always put in the best position. And when, even when I was, sometimes the play call wasn't right. So, um, 
that's obviously something that we need to work for. We've talked about this before, and I know it's it's low hanging fruit to bash the offensive coordinator in general at Virginia Tech. I mean, it's a tale as old as time, or at least as old as the Beamer era. Um, Two thousand one. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, we, we we've been doing this a while. Um, at the same time, that doesn't make the concerns that are raised both by the fans and, in this case, by the former quarterback Hendon Hooker invalid. Yeah. And, you know, he, he said it in the piece was he said the system is great, which Brian, me and you have said numerous times, like the system is the, the style that we have is a really unbelievable system. But to your point, um, yes, when he said right play at the right time, Brian, I think, did you text me or I texted you? I, I sent that quote and like, what? Brian's <laughs> like, I, we said that. That's what we're saying. Validation. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll take a victory lap on this. I mean, we've been talking about this for a long time. It's not the scheme. It's the number one, sometimes week to week preparation. Number two, situational play calling. And. Yep. And it's not that the offense has been bad, especially in terms of just the raw numbers. It's that there's so many points that are left on the field week to week. And there's so many opportunities to extend a drive that can put you in a better position to win the game that you just, it just isn't there. So, you know, we're not saying we're not critical of the offense across the board. I think there are pluses and minuses to take from it. But when you see a very key thing that there's nothing being done to address that key thing, you know, that's when you start ha- having some, some questions come out and some like, Hey, why, why aren't we doing anything to address this obvious exactly. shortcoming? Exactly. So, yeah, so definitely those concerns that kind of caught my, eye. the other one that caught, I think both our eyes, Brian was talking about who he had the closest relationship with and you expected to, um, you know, hear one of the position coaches or something like that. And he said, no, he's like, you know, really the GAs. And he really, he mentioned um, Caleb Gelasimino as something that why he talked to regular day to day in person. And at first, when you read that, if you take just that line out, it's like, Oh my God, our coaches are out of touch. But he kind of followed it up and he said, you know, that that's usually how it is. He's like, you know, you come in, you can talk to the coaches sometimes, but in college football, they have so much on their plates during the day. Um, yeah. I mean, you got recruiting that's 24 seven now. I mean, um, yeah. game planning, like there's, if it's not a scheduled time to be with the coaches. Yeah. I, I get that being close with the GA, like if that that's whose ear you're going to ping first with any, any sort of concern, any sort of like, low level question that you have about whether it's scheme, whether it's game plan, you know, whatever it may be, that's where you're going to touch first. And if, you know, they can't get you the answers, then you kind of move up the chain of command there. But um, yeah, I mean, it it made more sense as he went in there and the GAs are obviously going to be more accessible day to day and minute to minute than, than the even position coaches, especially, um, you know, probably in the, in the off season there. So, yeah, I, I definitely understand the answer, um, even though like the first line kind of was like, whoa, whoa, that's 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 interesting. But, you know, the the explanation makes sense. The explanation makes tons of sense. And, you know, 
the other pieces, it goes back to that, how much support staff do you have? How many GAs do you have? How many analysts do you have? Because the more guys you have like that, obviously, you know, four players come in at once and there's one GA and they're all going to talk to him and talk ball and talk shop and things that are going on in their heads. Well, he has four people to think about and four different potential different coaches to go back to to relay what's going on with those guys. Again, the building of the operations staff is going to help with that because if you have enough staff there, more people to listen to the players, to communicate it back to the coaches when the coaches are in, you know, deep film study or deep recruiting type stuff or on the road for recruiting potentially. So, again, always talking about it. Again, there's been that, those reports that the staff's going to get bigger, which is what we need. So, it makes sense completely. Um, again, it's like one of those things you're in a big company, not many times can you walk into the VP's office and sit down and have a conversation. You're usually talking to, you know, an operations manager or financial manager before you get to go to the big dog's chair. What about that last one, Brian? Me and you, we and you just talked on it. Did that make your eyebrows raise a few minutes ago? It did, man. Um, we're talking about what happened with the bowl. And, and you know, from the from the sounds that that Hinden's talking there, it's it's very it seems very much like a uh, situation where the players wanted to play, and yeah. some power that that is behind the scenes, or whether it's coaching staff, whether it's athletic department, whether it's you know somewhere else said you know we're probably not going to be in this bowl. That's interesting. Um, I, you know, we've, I think, heard whispers as, you know, well, players voted not to do it or coaches said they weren't going to do it. Like, we've heard the gamut of potential reasons why a bowl game wasn't played. Um, You know, we, I think, both have been kind of of the mind that we don't feel like the team earned it. So we were kind of fine with not playing it. But it would have been nice to keep the streak going, even if it didn't mean as much. Um, but it's interesting getting that perspective just because we hadn't heard any player talk about it directly, um, before. So it was, it was, it was interesting to see that that's the case. And, you know, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't see any other hard data out there to, to contradict what Hendon's saying here. So. No, not at all. There's nothing out there saying, and whether it came from coaches, coaching staff or leaders of the team, well, it was going to be what the military bowl. It was going yeah. to be, you know, it was it was not going to be a bowl of prestige. It was probably going to be a bowl where the guys were going to have to stay on campus for Christmas. And after the hell that they've been through with this with this with COVID shit, I'm fine with what they did, man. So, yeah. you know, I mean, and he talked about it, he's like, you know, I think most of the players were fine with it because. They wanted to get the extra tape. Like if, if they played the game, they, they got an extra game to get tape on it, at least against a quality opponent, even if it's not necessarily a high level ranked opponent that you, know, you would have liked to seen in a bowl game. But um, yeah. like I said, I, I would have kind of been good with it either way. Um, it's nice to kind of, in a way, in a season like we had, just to go ahead and kind of rip the bandaid off on this whole bowl streak thing. And, <laughs> kind of move forward with that. Um, yeah. Not th- the, the expectations for this past season were 
we didn't huh. come close to meeting them. They were high. We didn't come close to meeting them. So if we're if we're gonna rip the band-aid off, we might as well do it in a season like this where we've already lived the disappointment. Absolutely. All right. Something else that came out, and this was back on the 16th, so really just a couple days after we last recorded. Um the coaching salaries. Now, obviously, the reduced compensation this year because of COVID, they all agreed to take hits. But, Brian, let me, let, let's do this. I think this will be a little fun activity. I'm going to give you a coach, give you their yep. normal salary, not the adjusted salary. Too much, too little, just right. You ready? Yep, let's roll. All right, Jafar Williams, $280,000 a year. Uh, based on recent history, probably too much. Too much, okay. Vance Vice, three hundred thousand. That's just right. Just right, okay. Just right. Jack Tyler, brand new, hundred and fifty k. That's just right. I like that. I don't disagree with you on that one. I think Jack needs twenty five thousand more because we know he can call a game if needed. We'll discuss that later, folks. <laughs> uh, Bill Terrenick, four hundred thousand. Um. It's probably a little higher than I'd like, but I get why we're paying him that. Well, I think I see the defensive line and the improvements we had um, in that one year. I think he's just right. And if the defensive line continues to improve, I think he, he deserves a bump. All right, here we go. Brian Smith, 275. Um, I like it. Uh, I like that he got a bump from where he was he definitely earned it last year between getting dorian strong where he was dealing with not having his two best corners the whole year um and doing a good job on the recruiting trail so i think he earned bump probably could be a little bit higher if you really you know if we're being honest but i get that you can't do you can't go but so much on on one year's worth of uh of data so that's true man 75 this is going to be an interesting one, the next one. I'm, I'm going with 275, maybe give him 20K more, 295, but it's not he's it's not atrocious. Uh, next year, you know, the, the CBs continue to play like they played, especially once he has a full offseason. You better get ready to write an extra fifty to 60000 in that guy's check. Yep. All right, you ready? Yep. James Shabest. $475,000. It's high. Um, it's it, it. If if you told me he was like four twenty five, I'd probably say maybe just right. Um, you know, we're talking about, he's pretty much up there with, I know we're going to get to the offensive coordinator in a little bit. He's right there with the offensive coordinator as, you know, doing posi- special teams in a, in a position there. So, that seems a little high to me. Um, seems, it like seems I said, I'd, I'd, I'd put him at four twenty-five, and and I'd be happy with four twenty-five. It seems extremely high to me. Um, now, what are, they, are you going like three seventy-five? Then, oh yeah, yeah, seventy-five to a hundred thousand dollars less. The only way I would say I would approve this is if he's essentially the associate head coach. I don't have one in title right now. Shabas is probably the most experienced coach on the staff, probably. And I'm assuming maybe that's why he's getting it. He's not entitled, but technically, since he runs special teams, that maybe he's really doing some of the stuff with Justin. It's just not entitled. It's just in his 
it's just in his job description. So, but put the title if he's doing that so I can justify 475. If he's not doing that, give him 375 and spread the 100,000 elsewhere. All righty here. All right, Adam Lechtenberg. 275,000. I mean, with, with the new role he's taking on, I think that's just right. Um, I, I can see somewhere between 250 and 275. So we'll let it ride at 275. I, I'm good with, you know, where he's at right now. Now, can you kind of say if he has someone have, let's say he has another 1500 yard rusher next year. Um, do we need to pay that man some more money? I mean, hell, if he if if he gets a thousand yard rusher with the probably more than likely a committee backfield, then I mean, you, you definitely got to give him at least a little bumped up to maybe three. Um, okay, that because that, I mean that's not only the evaluation that he had to bring in a guy like Herbert and then to have a season like he had, but then to back that up with a backfield that doesn't have a true lead back as of this moment. If if a guy like Holston goes out and gets a thousand yards and you get a you know about seven hundred and fifty all purpose from a guy like Blackshear and you know a few hundred from from the other guys collectively, I mean that's a pretty solid fucking coaching job there um, with talent that is good but not necessarily elite at any level. Very true. Uh, JC Price walking in brand new two seventy five. Any any issues with that? Absolutely not. Good across the board. Not I, think, I, I think with having the role that he's going to have um, in really um, spearheading the recruiting in the state, um, probably some of the alumni relations on top of the job that he's going to be doing working with uh, Bill Tierlink, I think that's that's definitely justifiable. I'd have been happy with 250, um, but 275, I, I can't argue with that either. I'm good with 275 too. Um, but again, like a few other guys on this list, if you see some, let's just say we see three to four top 20 players in Virginia break the Hokies way. He might be asking for some more money next year. Yeah. I think <laughs> on his front, it's going to be the, what, what changes do we see on the recruiting side? Just because with him being, co-position coach i don't think even a good output from the defensive line would necessarily warrant a bump but if you see you know the continued output that we saw last year the defensive line on top of some recruiting um jumps that we weren't expecting um then i think you can definitely say okay well this is jc working his magic um you know maybe maybe you know you're not you're not talking about a big bump i don't think you put it much above three but you know, we'll see. Yeah, that's not where I'd be at. All right. So the, the the next one, before we get into the two coordinators, let's discuss Ben Hilgart's the strength and conditioning head man. So he's at 280. Okay. What if I told you that the top guy in the country is making double what he makes? And that's the Bama strength and conditioning coach. You know what I'm so, by? I'm going to say, I guess that's really two fronts. Um, I think he, relative to that, I think he's 
earning what he's making, that also begs the question, are we underpaying for that role? So essentially, are we are we attract not attracting a high level selection in that role because of where our salary is for it? Um, that's I'm not knocking Hillgard here by, by any stretch. I think that Hillgard does a pretty decent job. I think there are shortcomings in some of the things that we do because there are certain position groups that consistently are not, I don't think, putting on the good weight that, that we'd like to see or or at least the consistent good weight that we'd like to see. I think there is very much a not beach body mentality, but um, <laughs> I, I think a lot of times we sacrifice core strength for, I guess, functional um, weight, which I think is good. But at some point you got to be bigger, faster, stronger than the next guy. And Brian, I was incorrect. Um, the top paid strength and conditioning coach is Mickey Mariota. At Ohio State, who is making $800,000 a year. Okay, so yeah, we're pretty much getting what we're paying for then. Yep, uh, taking a look here, Ben Hilgard is... Yeah, where, where's the ranking in terms of actual position? Because I know there's going to be a big a big depth of, uh, of difference between kind of those top-tier blue bloods versus your average Power 5 uh, strength. You're looking at him, uh, believe it or not, um, we're about 40th teams like Virginia, NC state, Louisville, all paying more. So we're, we're honestly right where we are in terms of assistant compensation. Mm-hmm. We're right. We're right on track with that, with that position as well. So that, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're paying, you know, we've got top, top 25 expectations with, with top 40 investment. Ding, ding. All right, let's get the last two rolling here. Um, Justin Hamilton, $600,000 a year. I mean, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Uh, not- I, I think what, what happens this season is going to determine whether a lot more about what I think about that. Um, I don't think that we got a really good barometer of how good of a hire, you know, Justin Hamilton's going to be long term. Um, mm-hmm. I think we know that we know the good things, and we know that at least in short term, um, season one wasn't the best, but season one also wasn't there. There wasn't a lot of installation time for that defense, and there wasn't yep. a lot of time to practice that installation. Um, so I'm trying not to hold that against this season's output um, on top of all the other issues that, that the defense in particular dealt with, with COVID more so than the offense. Um, so let, let's look that's a wait and see for me. I, like, like I said, I'm fine with it now, but it's definitely a wait and see. Once I see what this off season looks like, once next season looks like how the defense adjusts, what type of, you know, when we talked about the, the, the presser that he had, some of the okay, well, a little bit of addition by subtraction, a little bit of streamlining the concepts, keeping some of the concepts um, that we're working with the with with Bud's defense into the system, and just in general making the system that he is implementing 
more consistent across the board in terms of the the type of communication that's coming from the coaches. So we'll see if that pays dividends on top of actually having a spring practice on top of having a normal fall, uh, fall camp. So time will tell there. Absolutely. And last but not least, the whipping boy of the podcast, Brad Cornelson for $90,000. Honestly, in terms of what both offensive coordinators get paid, I mean, he's earning his money. We're just not paying enough for that position, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And we're getting what we're paying for. And let's hope, you know, that discussion of there's more money coming into the program for spending those types of money and that and not only it helps the guys who are, you know, really performing here where we can get them to adequate levels so they don't leave. But those who are not performing, uh, let's hope that's able to get them out the door and get an upgrade with significantly more money to be paid. Yeah. I mean, you know my philosophy. If we're if we were hiring some new guys, just you know, starting from scratch, we already have Fuente in place, but starting from scratch and everything else, I'd I'd have yeah. like seven hundred fifty thousand being the, the the minimum starting price for my coordinators. Minimum, and obviously now it kind of think well, strength and conditioning would probably be closer to four hundred thousand. If we just yeah, if we bump that up to four hundred, and we bumped. Um, both of the coordinators up to 750 and then yeah, there'll be trickle down. I mean, you're not going to, pl- you're not going to pay. What is it close to 700,000 for defensive line coaches in that situation? No, no but you no, might no. have one guy that you pay 350 or 400,000. It's true. But you know, you kind of take a look at it. It's what it's, it's, it's a little over. It's like a half million dollars investment in upgrading those positions. It's not yeah. like a million dollars. You're not you're not asking for a million dollars to those positions levels right now. You're asking for about a half million. And if you're looking at that and you're saying we're going to give a put a million into the coaching pool, well, that feeds a half million dollars down again the good coaches you pay them and you get probably what 30 to 50,000 dollar upgrades in the position maybe the coach is like, "Hey, we we got to let him go, but now we can bring in a $300,000 guy." And so on and so forth. All right, Brian. So, last few weeks, we have got a couple recruits, a couple uh, unrated at the time they committed since they have gotten stars. Let's start at Virginia, Harrison St. Germain out of Westfield High School up in Chantilly, rated as a three-star tight end. Um, you looked at the tape on him just a little while ago, Brian. Um, am I getting Dalton or am I getting Gap? Uh, you're getting a li- some, somebody that's a little bit closer to James Mitchell in terms of skill set. Um, not okay. quite, at the, obviously, at the top end um, of, of any category necessarily like that. But I will say his blocking, at least out the gate, is probably a little bit closer to what you would get with Dalton. Um, but he's definitely more of a Joker-style tight end okay. that has the ability to, to, to block in line as well. Um Pretty good with his hands, um, runs pretty clean routes, and like I said, blocks pretty well in line and in space. So not a bad player. Um, I think, you know, it's kind of one of those things where we keep finding these, I'm not going to say diamond in the rust, but guys that are under-recruited and 
we're going to see a lot of this this year yeah. just because there hasn't been any, any junior tape on any of these guys. Um, so there's going to be a lot of evaluations that look funky at first, but the more we get from whether they have a fall season, like some of these guys from Virginia and some other States, um, or we start actually getting camps this summer, these guys are going to, we're going to see weird jumps in ratings. We're going to see guys that are completely unrated all of a sudden jump to like a high three star, like right out the gate. So we're going to see a lot of funky stuff guys. So, I mean, don't, don't necessarily freak out because a commit doesn't have, you know, three or four star next to their name when we're starting to either see flirtations or when we see their uh, verbal commitment come through. Because right now, a lot of these kids just they they have so little evaluation that if 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 the guys that we if our evaluations are correct, it's going to be a really good thing for us. So um, that's going to yeah. be the question, though: is you know, are we getting the good evaluations here? Guys like Adam Lechtenberg have done a good job of of evaluating talent and getting guys that fit well in the system, whether it's guys with a four star next to their name or guys you know with a three star or even you know fringe fringe two-star coming in and guys in the transfer portal. So there's going to be a lot of opportunities to um, to make some moves here on guys that have been under-evaluated and under-recruited through this point in the cycle. Yep. And with a guy like St. Germain, obviously Westfield, well, not only Westfield, State of Virginia in general are playing right now. So, you know, stuff you've seen on tape, if they – He's one of those guys, he's like an 80. Let me get back there. I had him up. Sorry. Everdeen. There for a Everdeen. Everdeen. Um, you know, he's rated as an 84. Composite. And then an 83 by 247. But, again, he's about to get junior tape. He has a really good junior season in probably five, six games. But it'd be a two-point bump to the mid '80s, and then if he has a if there are camps and he has a good camp, you know you've seen things on tape that already say he's already blocking good, which is great for a tight end. He has the potential to be a joker, but when you tell me a joker, but he blocks good, you know, could he be getting closer to that '88, '89? You know, but and those guys are going to have the opportunity, and you know. Obviously, for him, he'll have this. Then he'll have next fall as well to get reevaluated. Yep. But let's jump to one more, Brian. Brother already on the team. And, Brian, Braylon Moore, there's a gene that runs in their family, huh? Uh, yes. Uh, they got the nasty gene. Uh, this guy really likes to get after it in the trenches, finish blocks, um, take guys to the dirt. Um, get the pancake. So I like I like that element of of his game. Kind of I'd say raw, especially in pass pro. Um, so hopefully they, we can clean that up. Moving from tackle, which is what he's been primarily playing in high school, down into guard, more than likely with us, is going to help that. Um, so you know we'll look to see how that goes. Um, he also played defensive end in a, in a three man front system in his high school. So he's, you know, he's got DN capability, probably a three technique D tackle for us if in our system, but um, more than likely he's going to be playing on the offensive side of the ball um, at the guard position. 
Um, solid pickup. I mean, nothing to necessarily get excited about, but I, I mean, very solid pickup. And I, like I said, I think from a run game perspective and just having that nasty gene, you like having guys like that on your roster. Absolutely. And he's a three-star rated 84. And I'm not sure if Pennsylvania, obviously it's one of those things. Not sure if they're playing a spring season or not, you know, because so many states it's up and down and it's really, I'd say this, I'm going to keep more of an eye on Virginia than I am anybody. And, uh, you know, because if they played, great, the tape's out there. He'll have a senior season. Um, again, Lineage of Brothers continues at Virginia Tech. Um, you know, his biggest offer essentially at this point in time, along with Virginia Tech's, not a great offer list. Well, I'm not going to say, not going to knock that. A lot of some Mac schools. Um you know, some AAC schools and stuff like that. But again, it's it's awkward with just the way everything's going. The one thing yep. about St. Germain, Brian, that'll catch your eye, not a huge offer list. The most catching one, Wake Forest. Yep. We know that it, that is type. Diamond in the Rough U. <laughs> yes, it is. All right, Brian, let's move on, man. You know, over the last few weeks, our coaches have been talking to the press. Now, the shit you say. <laughs> but there has been disappointment in that. There was some disappointment in that. No one has known about them talking until we're sitting here. Ryan working in his home office, me working in my home office. Stop, check the Twitter sphere. Andy Bitter or Mike Nazolik or, you know, one of the other beat writers puts on there. And this coach said this. We're, we're having – they're having pressers today. We're going to discuss this in a few months, folks, with a uh, individual that is much more into this stuff than we are. And more adept at, at, at discussing this in a way that – comes from an area of expertise than we are we're novices but we kind of see we, we we see what's not happening she can explain what should be happening a lot better than we can what our assessment is though is that when we look at something like this so you've got you know set handful of coaches that are talking to the media you've got a, a couple players here there talking to the media I don't know about, I mean, I, I follow Virginia tech athletics as close as probably I'd say I, I'm at least in the, you know, yeah, 90th the percentile. Yeah. I'm in the 90th percentile. percentile of people that, that, that follow Virginia tech football in particular and Virginia tech athletics in general. I should know before I see tweets from, you know, Mike McDaniel and Andy bitter and Mike Barber at least I should know that this interview is going to be taking place. I should know because the official Virginia tech Twitter account should let me know, Hey, these guys are speaking to media today. That way, even if you're not live streaming it, even if you're not making it immediately available to fans, Which should they be. can say, okay, well, th- this is happening. I'm going to follow Mike McDaniel's Twitter today, or I'm going to follow Andy Bitter's Twitter today to see what's happening at this press conference. Not just, Oh, I happened to find on the timeline, and then like two days later, you end up 
sharing the the video where it's on demand on Hokie Sports. Like these are layups to build height for your program. These are layups, free throws, whatever fucking analogy you want to have for for easy. This is the easy stuff. If you want us to be engaged in Hokie football and be excited about the upcoming season, hype up the opportunities that you are presenting to get closer to these new coaches in some cases or coaches that we, that have been around, but we haven't really heard from very much or players that we haven't heard from very much. I mean, Luke Tenuta spoke with the media. I don't think he's spoken with the media his entire time at Virginia tech. And I didn't know about it until it was on Hokie sports. Like, and it was a day later, like what, what's the, you know, I'm not saying that everything has to be, immediately accessible. I get that there is a a give and take with that because my perspective is, is that it's better to be, be live because if someone does take it out of context, you can present the entire video in context in order to justify it. I get that mistakes happen with live video. You want to have as much control of the, of the content as possible. So I get that aspect of it. And that's why I'm okay with the tape delay, even if I personally disagree with it. What I'm not okay, okay with is not hyping it up at all. That's what I'm not okay with. All I'm going to say is this. When we get that interview, that that is going to be a fire interview. That's all I'm going to say. And let's move on. Let's move on. We're going to start. <laughs> Brian Smith first, Brian. I think the most interesting thing that you that came to Brian right from one of the most interesting things that came from Ryan Smith right off the bat was basically him sort of laying out that DJ Harvey, Elijah Howard, Mike Johnson, um, are going to basically be starting at corner. He also mentioned the deer Thompson has stayed with the corners and Mike Hawkins is officially a safety. Any shock there, Brian, any, you know, isn't what in this the norm? Defensive yeah, that, that's, that's going to be the norm. I mean, this is kind of like a stress test. Let's think about, about it that way. Um, any guy that you think has the ability to play corner, you want to put them in that group first as kind of a stress test to see, can they handle it there? Can, can that work? Unless there's an absolute need at a given position in the secondary. Um, so with that being said, it doesn't surprise me that, that some of these guys are starting out at cornerback, even if that's not going to be their final position. Um, you know, talking about Nadir, um, made a note that, uh, you know, Smith made a note that, you know, when he was called upon, especially in the Duke game, um, you know, played a pretty good game, uh, that week had some other spot duties, um, at cornerback on top of playing special teams pretty heavily last year. Um, so I yeah. think he's going to be a guy that's going to be in that in that rotation in that discussion for kind of a two deep or uh, you know ro- rotational type duties for us coming in twenty twenty one. Love seeing you know it's not a shocker that DJ Harvey is going to be a cornerback for us. That's what we recruited him as. That's that's where he plays. Um, yeah, I, I really like what DJ is bringing to the table in terms of talent. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do with uh, with Ryan Smith. Um, with us with uh, the, the the coming fall camp, and I like that Nike Johnson's already working with them in the spring, so that's going to be good for him. Oh, absolutely! But you know something that he mentioned. Um, you know, essentially, he was going into last year expecting to have you know two of the top five corners in the ACC, two essentially the top corner in the country, and then Jermaine had been rated what like top twelve the year before, 
and obviously what happened with Caleb opting out and then Jermaine getting banged and essentially being banged and unable to play to his potential the rest of the year turned guys like Dorian Strong, the Nadir Thompsons, Brian Murrays. So what we could have been looking at this year as a super green room is actually a, I mean, a pretty experienced room sort of top to bottom, along with adding those kind of young guys into the mix. Really like that. Really liked it because he was making the point of like, you know, I don't have to do a trial by fire with these guys. Yeah, I mean, you had a trial by fire in a season that everything was a trial by fire. So exactly, it's kind of nice having uh, having a little bit of experience at that position that you know you thought you were going to have last year that didn't come to fruition. And like I said, even even if a a perfect scenario last year would have occurred, you still would have been dealing with guys like Dorian Strong probably getting way more reps than you would have been comfortable with at the start of the season, um, despite how well he he, he you know, jumped in there and uh, and held up. Um, so I like I like what we're, we're I, I like knowing how what happened in 2020. I feel better yeah. going into this season knowing what we have behind Jermaine Waller versus how I felt last year, not really knowing what we had behind uh, Caleb and Jermaine. Nope. So feel better that, that, that's just me. Um, But, you know, he didn't mention quick with Jermaine that basically, you know, he, he couldn't speak to the injuries itself. And we get that. That's, that's a lot of stuff, but you know, he mentioned how, you know, he's been crushing the all season, very self-motivated and he's becoming a leader in that room again, we go back to last year. Jermaine was there sort of taking over that role and maybe having a season of not being able to play, being in those guys' ears have now made him the alpha of that room. Yeah, and I mean, let's think about it this way. Caleb didn't opt out until late. So Jermaine, whether, whether by choice or not, was kind of all of a sudden the de facto elder statesman in that room. And now he gets an off season to grow into that role versus it being thrust upon him due to the situation with COVID and Caleb opting out. Um, so I think that's going to be good for him. It sounds like he's, you know, taking over that leadership role and it's going to be good to get him back on the field in the leadership role versus more or less what he was doing last season as having kind of a off the field or a, you know, semi um, present leadership role because he was, so often not either not available or when he was available, he was limited Um, having him be on the field and hopefully be, you know, up to full strength is going to be good for us. Going to be absolutely great for us, Brian. Now we already mentioned that Smith got the pay bump and kind of one reason he got the pay bump, whether you you say it or not, they gave him the title passing game coordinator. And Brian, I know what, what kind of caught your ear was about, you know, he got that role, but, it was kind of how he's built to where he's gotten to here. Yeah. You know, his kind of talked about his journey, which was really a, a good poignant thing. Yeah. So, I mean, he talked about being having GA roles um, that kind of helped him move into where he is now between GA roles with William and Mary and Penn state, um, you know, working at JMU with a, a powerhouse program at that level. Um, I mean, he's kind of, kind of seen a lot of things from for a guy that's relatively young and still up and coming um, at, at the, at the cornerback coaching position, the secondary coaching position. Um, 
And I think that that's why you saw, you know, essentially what happened going into uh, NC State with him being tapped as the uh, the play caller, uh, emergency play caller, if if Jay Ham is out there. So I think that that was a pretty big big thing because he was the backup signal caller before Jay Ham knew that he had COVID. So th- this was something that was planned well in advance of, you know, the emergency situation that, that resulted in that being, um, you know, what they went with. So th- that speaks a lot to the trust that they have in Smith as a, as a young coach. Yeah, absolutely. Especially being the second in command on that, you know, the play calling thing, but then you start, you know, I think you mentioned it, but get letting him try different things in his room as a young coach. I'm sure there are a lot of young coaches that it's basically you need to follow the script. This is what you do. Where you already said it, they trust him. They're giving it open. Tell you something else they trust him with, Brian. They trust him with Virginia recruiting too. The line that stuck out, we want to keep the Virginia boys home. The man that resonated as I was as we were listening to it, discussed JC about JC's experience up and down the 95 corridor in Richmond and Nova 64 eastbound <laughs> the 64 yes, eastbound corridor down the 75. Like if you listen to that, he's speaking the language to Virginia. Those are the corridors. Those are the areas we need to recruit big. And it seems like they're locked in on it for this year. They're locked in on VA. I yeah, yeah. Good. I mean, I think him and, and JC are going to do some some pretty big things because I, Smith seems like a really good communicator. JC is a good communicator. He's got a, a ton of contacts, especially with the high school coaches. Um, you know, good avenues to pursue and you know relationships to cultivate, and I, I think that's going to be a big thing. And you know, we haven't seen the success that we'd like to see recruiting Virginia in the last few years, and. Mm-mm. You know, whether we see it come to fruition or not, you at least know they're doubling down on it. The emphasis is there. And that's a start. That's that's something to build off of. Absolutely. Definitely something big to build off of. Um, and again, you've got two homegrown guys with Smith and uh, Ham. Um, obviously, JC with all the connections between playing at Tech, being a GA at Tech. Coaching at JMU, then coaching at Marshall. He's basically been part of this state for 25 plus years. Yep. So, yeah. And we're, we're going to we'll get, get some more on him a little bit. <laughs> oh, yes, we will. But let's next, let's go to Adam Lichtenberg. Um, hey, Brian, how many, how many running backs we got? We got a fuck ton of running backs, man. <laughs> I don't know if that's like a unit of measurement that we can count here, but I, I'm going to call yeah. it a fuck ton. <laughs> it, it is. And I love what he said, man. He, he was very kind of upfront. Like, by the way, Smith on the mic, unreal. Lichtenberg, I think, shocked me and Brian. You know, no notes in front of him, but very, very articulate, very to the point. Knowledgeable. Uh, very knowledgeable. Yeah, straight, straightforward, too. Like, straight shooter didn't, like, didn't didn't get down rabbit holes or, or, or anything oh. like that. Very, very to the point, but but explained himself very well. But I love what you talked about the crowded backfield. He got asked about it and basically said he wants to have a full evaluation of all the running backs in the spring, Um, you know, and basically an organization of the running back. Every 
rep is important. Every mistake is important to his guys. But he he made something when he after he said that sort of stuff because you know somebody asked him about the portal and he was just like, you know what? After this spring, you don't hear this often. We're going to have open and honest conversation with every running back in the room. Which I to me, you don't hear coaches say that at all because I he's telling them. He's going to tell guys, yep, hey, you're you're stepping up. Yep, you might not be on the two deep this year or getting a lot of reps, but you're working there. Or listen, you might need to you might need to yeah. get in the portal. And stuff. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's a big thing. I mean, he talked about a couple guys that have the potential ability to make position change choices at at the end of the spring, and then some guys that he's just going to have open honest conversation, like, hey, man, you know, you're you're not touching the. Uh, four or five deep at running back here. So you're probably not going to be getting any reps come this fall. Here, here's some choices you can do. You can stick it out, you know, whatever it may be, you know, you can see what the transfer portal holds, or you can look at changing positions and get an opportunity either on the other side of the ball or at another position on offense, whether it's wide receiver or something else. Um, but just having those, I mean, that's, that's a good, that's refreshing to hear from me because it's, it sounds like, we're going to really try to get this running back room where it needs to be. And it's going to start with the spring and really seeing what all these guys can bring to the table, because I, I know I've said it on here before. It's hard to get those type of evaluations in the fall. You're, you're focusing so much on who were my best three to four guys at the position and not looking at, you know, the down channel situation. And we were already thick at running back going into fall, but there wasn't a whole lot of evaluation. And so many of the guys that we were bringing on were either transfers or freshmen or green guys that are coming from uh, JUCOs and things like that. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of that evaluation that could take place last year and getting a chance to do that with such a crowded backfield is going to be nice because we'll at least be able to know what we have beyond you know the, the the first two to three guys and and see if there's some guys that may fit somewhere else and guys that can open up roster spots that we can fill with with other need positions because we can't keep doing this thing where we load up on you know x position one year and y position the next year and then you know put ourselves in a situation where we're thin at certain positions every year going into the the new season true well, Brian, he also said something that absolutely got you ecstatic as we were listening to it. <laughs> yes, he did. Um, apparently, we're going to be working with uh, with two back looks in the spring. Two of them. As, as I sent Brian, go on. What? <laughs> Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we had talked about the, I'm gonna take a victory lap on this. I know I've already taken a small one earlier on the uh the Cornelson situation with Hendon Hooker, but I'm gonna take another victory lap on you know someone that said before Blackshear even got his waiver that we need to be looking at 21 personnel a lot um and using the second back as kind of a hybrid wing slot receiver that can also do some things out of the backfield. Uh, we've got Blackshear on the roster. Now we're bringing in a guy like chance black going forward. 
We've got a couple other guys that are versatile that can do stuff in that type of situation. Let's take advantage of that. Let, let, let's yeah. not, let's not pigeonhole guys into, okay, well, you're a running back. So you have to carry the ball out of the backfield in inside and outside zone. Like <laughs> it was so, and I, I mean, I was glad that we finally, the last, what, two or three games got Blackshear yeah. more involved in the passing game from the slot position and from the wing and, and doing things that weren't just, you know, you line up next to the quarterback and take the handoff. Um, so, I mean, that was nice, but, you know, I like that he's still going to be working out of the running back room, but the fact that yeah. we're going to be doing different things with Blackshear and with other guys of, of the similar type of skill set, uh, whether that's Keyshawn King or Chance Black or anybody else, um, yeah, that's only going to pay dividends for us. I mean, there's no Absolutely. downside to that. And the one thing y'all, the Blackshear thing that always got you, I wish a coach, I don't care if it was Wente, Cornelson, Lechtenberg, someone would have came out and just kind of said the Blackshear thing and basically said, you know, he was he was essentially guaranteed so late, it was just too late for us. But, Brian, we had this discussion as, this, as we were talking about that. Well, here's the thing. You have some guys who are maybe not a carbon copy, of Raheem Blackshear, but they could do some of the things he did. And it's sort of me and you started discussing, it's like, why wouldn't you start essentially showing looks, giving those guys kind of interchanging with Raheem? To me, it says something about certain people of the coaching staff not being, you know, up here, not thinking like that. But neither here nor there, somebody should have just said that. It would have, A, made Brian less pissed off during certain games last year and, uh, you know, things like that. Brian, he he mentioned a couple things, you know, Jalen Holston. Obviously, we feel Jalen's probably, you know, that name's going to be penciled in at the top of the list, the way he ran, especially the back half of the season. But he yep. hit on Marco Lee and he hit on uh, Keyshawn King. What were your thoughts about, you know, how he discussed those two guys? Yeah, I mean, the the big thing that stood out for me with Marco Lee, and this kind of explains why maybe he didn't get as many looks until late in the season last year, is that um, he was still learning the system, especially what the running back does when they don't have their have the football in their hands. Um, and that makes a lot of sense in terms of a guy like Marco coming into the system. Um, you know, I, I'll compare him a little bit with Raheem Blackshear, who – while he didn't learn the system, he had been in a system that he had to do all those things already. He had to work without the football, whether from the slot position or from the running back position. Um, so he was a little bit more seasoned and ready to contribute, even though he wasn't necessarily a master of this current system. Um, whereas a guy like Marco Lee is for the most part, learning a lot of the things that he does, without the football in his hands for the first time. He's never done it in a college football game at this level. So that's something that's going to take some time to come along, and especially not having spring, having a very different uh, fall camp. And let's talk about fall camp because you, you you talked about it with the Blackshear thing. Um, fall camp reps are finite, and you're trying to find – kind of the best two or three guys you can put on the field. 
So at the running back position, and this is where the Blackshear thing you're talking about makes more sense. The waiver didn't come in till late. You didn't until you got the waiver, you couldn't justify taking reps from other guys just to put Blackshear out there for X number of reps or whatever the second team reps are and all that stuff. Um, you know, you had Keyshawn King that probably came in at a weight that you weren't comfortable with as him being the primary spell back. He had some other injuries he was dealing with. There was a, a, a several, several things that were going on for, for Keyshawn King. You had everybody else other than, than Jalen Holston. That was very, very green in this system. So, I mean, if you, if you say there's a misstep in all of this in terms of who got carries, who got touches, et cetera, et cetera, in 2020, Holston not getting as many touches early is probably the the most egregious error here. Yeah. Everything else is explainable though. So yeah. that that's that's kind of what I based on the conversation that that uh, Lechtenberg had with the media. That's kind of where I came out. Yeah, and you know, but that is what it was last year. You know, you, you, it was on the fly. And we went five and six. It was not the expectations we wanted. We did have a bunch of new guys there. Maybe maybe that truly set us behind the eight ball. Maybe I'm trying to be an optimist right now. But something, you know, I was critical of the Lechtenberg hire. Didn't like it. But as you start reading more and more and you start listening to him, I mean, he grinded his ass off. Yep. Or, Big time. I mean, he's he's been in admin roles. He's been in GA roles. He's been in, I mean, 12 years yeah. until you get your first position coach role and doing a bunch of different things yes. off the field and uh, behind the scenes. So, I mean, there, there's been a lot of things that he's seen. And I think of anybody, he's kind of got a better CEO type vision of, at least from the offensive side of things, than even um, you know your your coordinator has probably probably better than anybody other than Fuente on the staff. Um, it's true, and he loves football. Yeah, there's there you don't if you guys look at his journey starting in 2007 when he was probably in his mid 20s to now, that guy loves football. There is not a doubt about that. And you know Brian wrote down this quote. And basically, he's been grinding his whole life, you know. And to have somebody like that with that mentality, he walked on at Nebraska. Again, his personality on the microphone was kind of impressive. He mentioned his parents were teachers, so obviously parents were always in front of people. Um, You know, talks about the recruiting game being 24-7, nonstop. You can't stop. You know, I'm – if he puts out another thousand yard rusher, you know, I said earlier, maybe I, I have to start boarding the Lichtenberg train. <laughs> All right, let's move on. The lowest man on the totem pole currently, Jack Tyler. Um, you know, first of all, what was Tracy Clay's doing last year? That Jack Tyler was the emergency, emergency play caller. You know, Paul Smith was the emergency play caller, as we discussed earlier. Um, you know, that's yeah. still a head scratcher for me, but I mean, that, that's a different discussion. Um, but yeah, hey. where, where, where was Clay's and why was Clay's not giving this response? But so like, I'm not sure if Clay's showed up and just didn't give a shit 
or he wasn't there or or what like Tracy Clay is <laughs> obviously a good coach like you you don't have the length career and success that Clay's has without being a pretty decent and respectable coach I know he was coaching number one out of position in terms of what he's traditionally coached number two in a situation where he's more of a mentor versus a leader, which may be just a different dynamic from him, whatever it was, it didn't work. And, you know, this is definitely an addition by subtraction situation in my mind, getting Jack as the primary linebacker coach. Absolutely. And again, Jack's that guy walked on, then became a starting Mike linebacker has essentially, again, you know, he, he worked his way, went to JMU, came back here. And the way it sounded in the interview, he had a potential chance last year at maybe taking a lower job, but he decided to stay again at the Laura Virginia Tech. Um, we talked about, A, he talked about Fuente in a very high regard, talked about him as a mere coach as anyone, and the program's on the right track. Um, and I know these guys are <laughs> we, we made jokes about that. We, we made we jokes. Didn't. That right track five and six. Okay, Jack, I better see improvement. What but track he, are we on? <laughs> yeah, let's just hope it's not track for the uh, broken down bridge. Um, you know, because that'd be terrible. But talked about himself as a coach, he wanted to try to stay even keel, never too high, never too low, don't get caught up in the moment. Um, you know, maturing, you know, you know, he's essentially trying to take his playing self, bringing it to a coaching self. What I hope he can do with the guys we have, because we've got a good core right now, who are so much physically more gifted than Jack ever was. But if they can get the mind of Jack Tyler and Dax and Tisdale's and Dean's and in Keyshawn's bodies, that's going to be a nasty room. And I know that is a key to Springs getting the depth back in that room for this year. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely that. And I mean, he talked about, you know, talked about Dax, talked about Tisdale. He said for, for Tisdale, you know, sky's the limit for him as a player. He's put on some good weight this spring. I said it was 2019. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But apparently, you know, maturing in terms of how he's approaching the game, um, how he's approaching preparation for practice and for uh, for games. So I think that's going to be important in terms of his growth, because, I mean, we talked about it on on the podcast a lot of times in 2020. It wasn't so much that Tisdale looked even with his weight overmatched is that he wasn't where he needed to be. It it looked like he didn't really, he wasn't comfortable in the scheme at all. There were, there were moments where he was there, he was disruptive, but when he wasn't, it it, it totally created a big chunk play for the other offense. So, um, you know, getting more preparation in there. And and, and I think he said the maturity, I know he had a son, what, right at the end of the season or so, um, but yeah, that definitely, you, we can speak to that. That definitely matures you pretty quick. Um, you know, even if you have one at 29, like me and you're still just a man child, but <laughs> it'll, it'll mature you up real quick. Yeah. So, um, so for sure there 
talked about Dax and sliding into Mike, and that's going to be a big move for him. I know we've we've talked about that a little bit uh, earlier um, in some of the other things we were talking about for the uh, for the offseason grades and stuff like that. But Dax moving to Mike is going to be big for his improvement. I think you're going to see a pretty big jump in the quality of his play. Um, I don't think you're going to see quite as many Dax haters out there. And I, I get the Dax hate. I, I understand it. Um, it's definitely, I mean, there's, there's elements of like the whole, the, the fan base doesn't help it because the fan base embraced him right away. And sometimes when you put a guy on a pedestal that hasn't put the product on the field to earn necessarily that recognition, there's, there's blowback, right? You see it all the time. You saw it with Tim Tebow, for example, in the NFL. I mean, there, there's so many classic examples of guys that get put on a pedestal based on whether it's character, whether it's their recruiting rankings, whether it's, um, you know, how they play out the gate, whatever it is, they get elevated to an expectation level out the gate. And then when they don't meet some of those expectations going forward, yeah. You know, you get you get some blowback from certain parts of the fan base, and then there's gonna be some people that that you know keep him on there, and that that's where that friction is created, right? So we've got that's guys that that still keep Dax at this pedestal level that we expected him to play at, and then there's everybody else that's saying, well, he's not playing at that level. Stop putting him up there. You know, yeah, it, it, you, you get but, that element. But but to Jack's point, and and we've said it in the past, Dax wasn't a backer. The reason no. that he played backers because he understood his liabilities and he tried to minimize them, but he said it straight up. His size, his physical makeup is more suited for Mike. He has the borderline athleticism played a backer, but not the full-blown that you need to. And then he kind of complimented that Dax is more of a quarterback on the defense. Well, that couldn't be the quarterback because Rook was a hell of a quarterback on defense. So yeah. Dak, again, didn't get to show that sort of leadership role in the Mike. Yes, he's the rah-rah guy. Yes, he claps his hand. Yes, he swings the towel, which you need that sort of energy. I think you're going to see a little bit different when you talk about him being the quarterback, him being the coach on the field. And, and Brian, you've mentioned a couple times to me, you know, so many times it's like Dak was in the right spot, but he couldn't finish. Or, you know, Dak just was once – a quarter step behind where he needed to be at the backer spot. Yep. Dax was rarely out of position. Dax's problem was that Dax couldn't athletically hang with some of the responsibilities he was given. And sometimes when he was there to make a play, sometimes he'd miss a tackle or he'd get absorbed by a block. Um, But again, I, I say it all the time. Like, you know, 60% of, of a good defensive play is being where the fuck you need to be. And he, pretty much every play he was where he needed to be. So now he's that, been- that's a start. That's a start. And now, now he's the quarterback of the defense. Um, he's playing in a position where he won't be as much of a liability athletically. Yep. So I think you're going to see some good things from him. I want to see him work on tackling. I want to see him work on shedding blocks. That's still going to be two areas that he has to get better in regardless of backer or, or Mike. And he's going to have to get better, especially at, at shedding the blocks from the Mike perspective. But I think overall, I think he's going to do a good job. Um, I, I think you're probably going to see 
I, I think he in in this system he's going to be better than Rook because we saw Rook get um kind of exposed a little bit because of his at, lack of athleticism last year and his probably not quite being at at his peak level of conditioning yeah. coming into camp. Um, so in this system, having more athletic linebackers is better. So you're talking about a guy that's already was playing in a, in an area that requires more athleticism last year and moving him into an, an area that requires less. But like I said, I think out the gate, he's, he's a better athlete than Rook, but he's going to have to work on some of those other things that Rook was really good at, like not getting blocked. Cause that, that's where Rook excelled. Yeah, and shedding. Good Lord, good rookie head. Before we jump over to J.C. Price, one last little quote from uh, Jack. And just think about this, Brian. He says, man, Coach Fuente is a very loyal human being, very loyal coach. Reminds me of somebody else that was in Blacksburg. And many times we screamed as fans, we want people fired and people didn't get fired. And uh, Bud said it. You keep hearing it even from these young guys coming in about how they remind current coach with former coach. Yep. But let's jump over to JC, who played for that former coach. And when the first line comes out of his mouth is, it's my dream to return to Blacksburg, man. That's it, man. you, You know they hired the right person. Yep. Nothing else needed to be said about that hire when he said that. Um, and, I mean, and J.C.'s a legend. You know, he was part of that 95 team and everything. But he's coming in. He He's a veteran. He's a grinder. And, you know, you know, he already has somewhat of a relationship with people on the staff. You know, he had been invited by Fuente to the summer camps, coming down from Huntington. You know, essentially scout players. And some people say, well, why would you do that? It's done all over the place. Yep. You know, don't say it's not. And, um, you know, you, you wrote this down, Brian. I want to credit you with it. But you feel like JC is a guy that is going to – that will provide an input. but understand he's part of a whole. Yeah, and I, where, what I put that in was when he was asked um, – and he actually asked for a clarification about the question. Um, kind of asked about what things from his experience at Virginia Tech can he use to mold and change what's happening on the current staff. And he's more, he seems like a guy that will speak up when there's something to be said, but realizing that his perspective is not the one, not, not the only one that matters. And he wants to, you know, kind of work within the framework of what, you know, the program is working towards and understands his role, but also understands that he is going to be leaned on for some of this thing because he does have ties to the glory days, if you will. He does have ties to the former staff. He does understand what it takes to win at this university. So there are elements that he's going to bring that he's going to be the guy that's leaned on, but he also understands that, you know, his voice isn't the one that needs to be the loudest all the time. Yeah. And, 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 and you see that that's, that's kind of a type of person you mean, because I have a feeling when his voice does get loud, people will listen. 
He also discussed his relationship with Jay Ham. Um, and actually, similar to Jack, we just discussed, Jack had some offers. They offered Jay Ham a position when he was in that director of player personnel position. They offered him an on field position, and obviously, he declined it. And uh, that got Jay Ham where he is. Obviously, it goes back when, you know, JC was a GA. That's when Ham was playing here, man. Yep. So those guys go back, you know, close to 20 years. And, you know, again, you know, it, it's just cool to see that. And then the other piece, which I think I'm sure you would have loved to have been sitting in this room, Brian, is, you know, really didn't know, you know, really, you know, really no bill. Yeah. And then comes in, they immediately get together. And what do they go do? They, uh, they chop it up talking football for four hours. And, uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a good relationship there because I think, you know, he kind of talked about it. They don't necessarily have what you would call mirror images of philosophy on defensive line play. But I think that's a good thing because that kind of pushes each other to kind of listen to the other, you know, see, see what else is out there. You, you know, you don't want to just get in that mindset of my way is the right way. You're always wanting to, to grow. You want to learn having a guy with somewhat different uh, philosophies at the same position, I think is going to be a good thing because I think each of them will push each other and, and grow from, from the experience that the other brings. I mean, Bill's got, you know, a lot of that NFL type X's and O's, things like that. And I think JC may have, he's got a lot of that as well, but I think he's got some of the soft skills and some of the understanding on the recruiting trail and, and the, and how the college systems work that I think Bill can learn a lot from. So I think there's going to be that give and take from that perspective, not just the X's and O's and scheme and philosophy of defensive line play that, you know, is a little bit similar and a little bit different, but it sounds like they have good chemistry um, oh yeah, I think that's you know that that healthy dialogue is going to be a good thing for the defensive line. Oh, absolutely. Um, and again, I think again it's having that extra voice in there, and you know, to where Daryl had played in a lot of Bill Tierlink systems, so he sort of understood what Bill wanted to do, and it was very much probably why Barno came along so bad or so fast was. He knew what Bill wanted to do. He taught him. In yep. this case, they have, you know, they're not perfect on philosophy, but they probably have enough of overlying where, you know, example this year, Bill's working with the ends. Hey, I need you to go work with Jordan. Let's work with, you know, the X's and O's piece. JC got it. Let me go. But to your point too, I think JC with his voice is going to say sometimes, hey, let's let's look at it this way. And I think for Bill, it's probably going to help him grow a little bit too. Um, but again, overall, that that's a good thing. It's a really good yeah, thing. Yeah, and let's talk about this. Okay, so I mean, we're both married to teachers. Yes. Okay, so let's say a defensive scheme is like a curriculum. There's several different ways to get to that end game. There's different philosophies. Mm-hmm. There's different things right there. Teachers are constantly, you know, learning different ways to get to the same endpoint. This is the same yep. type of thing. Um, their endpoint is more or less in the same ballpark. 
they might have a little yep. bit of different way of getting there and learning different ways to get there is going to help them translate that. Because honestly, much like um, students, not every player is going to pick up and learn in the same way or in the same fashion or respond to the same type of criticism or same type of critique. So that's going to be a good thing long-term. I, I did like, and uh, this was kind of a, a, a part of levity of the, uh, the interview. Um, the question about where was the first place he ate when he got to Blacksburg or any, any places that were still, still popular from his heyday. Uh, he said it was a coin flip PKs and McAdoo's. <laughs> uh, McAdoo's what, won when, when it got the, uh, when it got the, I guess the, probably a Hindenburg. What do you think? You think, you think he crushes a Hindenburg? I think he could crush a Hindenburg. Maybe I think, so. he, I think I, I, I've heard tell that McAdoo's is a hell of a place for, uh, for recruits. Oh yes, it, it's you know <laughs> to be there with the recruits. It's awesome. Yeah, you meet the recruits there. You have a sandwich. You talk about football. You know. Well, you know what's the best part of it is the menu is so big that you literally <laughs> get your recruiting pitch done while the recruit <laughs> through the menu, and then once the pitch is done, you point them to the best piece of the menu for that particular player, and then you essentially get to commit on spot. Yeah. I've heard defunct podcasts like to uh, ask for interviews there too. <laughs> Not this podcast. <laughs> Let's do talk about um, him. He's obviously got the recruiting title role and he kind of was talking about it. It's more or less, he's the guy that's going to be, we need to look at films on recruits. Have you made the call here? It sounds like it's more of a, he's more of a logistical guy. And again, JC, Biggest person in that room, my assumption is if JC speaks about have you, you know, have you looked at tape of, um, I don't know, Sean Asbury. And I know he's like a top 10 player. Hey, Jack, you looked at Asbury's tape. You you talked to his trainer. You talked to anybody on him this week. To me, it seems like it's almost that's going to be a checklist type thing for him. Like, and, you know, some coach says, yeah, I, I can't get in touch with anybody. Well, hold on. DM the number over to him. Call this guy. Yep. This is a that type of thing. Making making sure that you know. All right, well, we got this guy coming to campus. Make sure you're watching his fucking tape this week, so you're prepared to discuss this, that, and the third yes. with them. Make sure that you're reviewing, you know, family members. This so that you know names, you understand the relationships, you understand who plays a key role in this player's, um, you know, life, um, so that you can relate to them as best as you can because i think that that's another part of it that um you know the 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 coaches obviously they 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 recruit they're trying to get the best players but it's about building relationships so if you're not doing the homework on that then that's going to show up when it's time to to kind of close the deal absolutely and going back he had that personal story um jc essentially grew up kind of out in the rural areas of Maryland, um, pretty highly recruited player to a point where powerhouse to Matha, you know, Brian, you know, we heard it. They wanted to come get him his senior year. Yep. But the coach that they brought into his high school was kind of a well-known coach, winner, and he convinced him to stay at his high school, not make the hour commute both ways every day to go down to a powerhouse. And you know, talking about staying home and everything. 
But that starts one of these three things that I think he's going to bring it. A, that selling point right there, if whatever that coach said to him, I have a feeling instilled something in him about staying home, doing it at home. That's one story. But, Brian, the uh, the next one that he revealed, uh, me and you, I think we talked about it 20 minutes. He revealed his 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 degrees. He got the uh, the liberal arts and science degree, which at the time he said was essentially three minors that add up to a major. Um, because he wanted, and to be then he talked about he because he wanted to be a coach. So he this is this was his idea. He's like, all right, well, so I want to be a coach. So three minors that can that can build up to a major for me: Soci- sociology, physical education, and African American studies. And that yep. tells me right there that this guy understands what it's going to take to be a coach and what it's going to take to fill in any blind spots that he may have and working with people that may have different life stories or, or understanding, understanding how, how they tick. And also just the physical education part of it, or just understanding how to get guys in their peak performance to, to, to go out there on the field and do what they need to do. Absolutely. And, and when he when he mentioned that about those degrees, it was just like, again, he is from, and I'm not sure if it's a rule, but it's it's not your it's not your Baltimore proper's or you know down in areas like that. He had his background, and he said, if I'm going to be a coach, I've got to understand. I understand my background. I'm going to have people that I run into that are similar to me. We're going to connect. Boom, great. I want to understand everyone I touch. And, you know, obviously he, he knew that, you know, the African-American studies, you know, I've got African-American teammates. I want to understand what goes on. I want to know more about them. I want to be able to connect with them. And, man, that, that just tells a lot about him as a human being. But Brian, you know what else tells you a lot about the human being is when he discussed the 95 story, man. Yep. Um, For you younger people, go back, look. 95 was a great season. 95 started off shitty. Yeah, it did. Really, really shitty. Uh, You know, back-to-back losses, the second being to, you know, Cincinnati at Lane Stadium. And I think I've heard stories it was like the pouring down rain. The opening loss was to Boston College. And, you know – you kind of hear JC talking about it sitting in the locker room after the game with just this miserable feeling and then having to watch the tape the next day. And he didn't say it, but I think he didn't say it in the way Brian, I think you assume this is the way he said it, right? Yeah. I said, uh, he said, we're not losing again. I I said, we ain't fucking losing again. Because, I mean, uh, again, JC kind of reminds me a lot of – he kind of reminds me of a combination of my offensive line coach when I was at Hamden Sydney, um, Keith Conlon, and uh, our good buddy, uh, Hambone, Robbie Compton. If you put those two guys together, that, that's who JC kind of reminds me of. And th- that's something I could see them, uh, them saying in that scenario. Like, we ain't fucking losing again. Really, and then not just saying it, not just saying it, but putting that shit into action, doubling down on studies, doubling down on practice, doubling down on film, 
all of the things you need to do to have success on the field. Yep. And obviously everybody knows what happens the next week. They go out, beat Miami. As Dwight said last week, back 98 when he finished it up, 95 was the first of four straight. 99 made it five straight. And basically, they didn't lose another game. They didn't lose another game. The comeback at UVA, the Sugar Bowl win over Texas. It tells you about his mentality, too. And, you know, there's been times under this current coaching regime, you know, a lot of times we see a lot of fight, but sometimes you just feel like sometimes the players aren't – I don't want to say it because you see them play their asses off, but you feel like sometimes they just turn it off. I don't think Gacy Price is going to let people in that locker room turn things. Yeah, off. I don't. I don't think it's lack of effort. I think sometimes it's lack of focus. Like I think they <laughs> give effort. I think the focus is where we see a lack on on some of those things. And I think that having a guy that understands setting a goal, setting the uh, things up to achieve that goal, and yep. holding everyone accountable at all times towards that, uh, that goal responsibility, I think is going to be um, important for this team going forward. Cause I mean, this is a guy that, you know, we, we talk about Virginia tech, but I mean, this, this is one of the guys that built what Virginia tech is and what Virginia tech became. And yep. he understands he's, he saw both sides of it. I mean, he, he saw the downs and he saw the ups and he saw, you know, what what we were and what we became just in his short time in Blacksburg. And I think that that matters. And I think going back to the point earlier, I think that's what um, that question was trying to be trying to ask is that, you know, are there lessons from your time as a player here that you can bring to the table and help this team take the next step. Yep. And it is. And he has them. Well, Brian, I'm going to, we're going to stop the Virginia tech talk there. And before we wrap the episode up, I need your 92nd analysis of the Carson Wentz trade. <laughs> I think in terms of it being a relatively safe, relatively cap friendly all things considered, I think in terms of being able to move off of it, if it doesn't work out, I think it was a good trade. Um, I would have preferred Stafford. I probably would have also preferred um, Darnold um, if we could have gotten him for a similar, similar trade package. And obviously his, uh, the cost would have been lower. <laughs> in terms of the immediate <laughs> contract. So I think if we were to pull that off, I think I would have been fine with it. Uh, I'm, I'm still wait and see on Wentz. I think if he can stay on the field and working with Frank Reich again, I think that's going to be a good thing for him. The problem I have is that I need to see this guy play more than 12 games in the season. True. But the honest truth is, you said Frank Reich, if there's anyone that can fix him, it's Frank Reich. If Frank Wright fixes him, I hate y'all. 
because yeah, if y'all, I mean, if, like I said, we didn't give a ton, and you did. the you the did. contract he's bringing on board is that if it doesn't work this year and next year, we're pretty much off the hook with no more dead money, and yep. cap space have the cap yep. space to do it because of the luck retirement. Bill Rivers will have one year. If he gets fixed, I mean, y'all essentially have a 10-year quarterback. Yeah. And y'all have a front office that knows how to draft. So I think we're going to take know. Christian Darius on the first round if everything works out the way I'm hoping. <laughs> and Darisol, dude, I had I, I saw some mocks. He's flying up in the top 10 now. Yeah, he's, he's anywhere between like 9 and 28, depending on so mocks. <laughs> Depends on how that thing breaks. We've 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 so, got it. We could potentially move up though. So we we've actually got true. got some action where we can move up. So if he's who we're targeting, or if some if, if we're comfortable with if we're comfortable with the first four or five tackles, then I think we're fine to sit where we're at. Yep. But if we if we've got a, a a certain you know one to three in that top five that we absolutely if we feel like we can get him, we're going to try to get him. Then I think I could see us moving up um, and making that play. And if all of them are gone by the time we get around, I, I could see us trading back and, you know, make getting an extra pick in the second round. So. Absolutely, dude. All right. Well, folks, that is going to wrap up this episode of the Boundary Corner podcast. I'm Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite source, including Spotify, Amazon, and Apple Podcasts. Also, folks, if you have not checked it out already, we do now have a website, boundarycornervt.com. Check it out. All of the podcast episodes are on there. We even got a special section with our interviews, you know, set out. A little background on both of us. Our buddy, Jason Long, who always plays us out every week got some information on him and some of his music on there check him out on spotify and and apple music we thank you for listening and as always let's go hokies